Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we are thankful for this privilege that we have to gather together and lift up our voices in praise and adoration. What a joy it is to be able to sing of your greatness, of your great salvation that you have blessed us with. We thank you, Father, that in Christ we are forgiven and able to worship you and commune with you. And we pray, Father, that as we continue to worship you in the preaching of your word, that you would work in our lives, that your spirit would bring about conviction of sin, bring about sanctification, a greater desire to love you and to serve you. We pray for the salvation of sinners, whether it be here or wherever the gospel is proclaimed this day, that many would be brought into your kingdom. We pray, Father, that you would use this church to be a lighthouse in this community. Use us as we go each day into the world and do our work. Give us opportunities to speak the truth to those that we come in contact with. We pray, Father, that you may teach us to be more like Christ as we study this passage today. Knowing that it is impossible unless the Spirit of God lives within us to do these things that are required of us by our Lord and Savior. Give us understanding of those things, Father, so that we might understand how we are to be different from this world work in our lives to bring honor and glory to your name. Be with those unable to be with us this day. You know their needs and their reasons, and we pray that they would be able to return to us soon. We pray, Father, that all that would be said would be pleasing to you and bring honor and glory to the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to Matthew chapter 5. We'll pick up with verse 30, 40, I'm sorry, 38 through 42. Verses 38 through 42. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your coat also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, Do not turn away. Today's passage, I must admit, is a very difficult passage to preach. As we study it, I think you will have a better understanding of what I mean when I say that. But first I want to mention how important it is that we depend upon the Holy Spirit 
to reveal to us the truth that Jesus has spoken here to us. This morning as I was coming to church, I listened to Alistair Begg as I normally do, and he was speaking about how important it is to pray and pray that the Holy Spirit gives us insight, pray that the Holy Spirit does the work that only He can do. For unless the Holy Spirit moves, all is vain. We will not learn anything. We will not benefit unless the Holy Spirit moves in our lives and gives us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth. Remember when Peter answered Jesus rightly and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. What was Jesus' response when Peter said that? Blessed are you, Simon Barjonas, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And of course, the way the Father reveals it is by His Spirit. That's the only reason why Peter was able to understand who Christ was. And that's the only way that we are able to understand who Christ is, is by the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, taking the Word of God and applying it to us. And attempting to expound the Word of God, we must see how needy we are when it comes to passages such as this especially. See, some look at this passage and make the claim that this is higher standard of spirituality than what Moses taught. That Jesus is in introducing to us a different code of conduct, different from what the Old Testament required. And they believed that the Old Testament standard was not as high as the standard that Jesus held to. And as far as salvation is concerned, some even think that the Old Testament way of salvation was actually different from the New Testament way of salvation. There are those that actually believe that in the Old Testament it was a salvation by works. Now no doubt most of the religious leaders had perverted God's truth. They had perverted the Mosaic law. And they had turned salvation into a works-oriented salvation, completely void of any grace. I've mentioned this often as we have studied the Sermon on the Mount. Time and time again, I've brought that up. I hope by now you understand that, that the religion of the religious leaders, the religion of the Pharisees and the scribes, was very different from the religion of Jesus. Theirs was works. Jesus was all of grace. Now, one of the main reasons Jesus preached a Sermon on the Mount was to set forth the truth of God's law. That His law is perfect and good, as David often said. And when God's law is written upon man's heart, it's loved. It's lived out. It's proclaimed. Man does not keep God's law to obtain salvation, but he keeps God's law because of salvation. Do you understand that? I hope so. And that's the reason why we love God's law. 
It's because of salvation. If you do not love God's law, then you better examine yourself and see if you have been saved. Because once a man is saved, he loves and delights in the law of God. Read the Psalms and read what David says about God's law simply in Psalms 119. And over and over again, you will see how much he loved the law of God. By grace, God ordained only one way of salvation, only one way to heaven, by the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this gospel was preached in the Old Testament. It was first preached to Adam and Eve right at the very beginning. As soon as they fell into sin, the gospel came. And Jesus, I mean, and God told them that He would send one to crush the head of the serpent and that there would be victory. So they heard the gospel there in Genesis 3.15. Redemption, redemptive history begins in Genesis and goes all the way to Revelation. And we know that in Galatians 3.8, it clearly teaches us that the gospel was preached to Abraham in the Old Testament. In Hebrews 4, 2 states that the gospel was preached to the Israelites while they were in the wilderness. And a few Sundays ago in Sunday school, you heard that the gospel was preached by Noah before the flood. For a hundred years, he preached the gospel and sad to say, no one repented. Only his family was saved from the water. So as we come to these verses, we must see that Jesus Christ is not pitting himself against the Old Testament. He is not pitting himself against the Mosaic law, nor teaching some super spirituality. He continues the same path that he began at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and he follows it throughout the sermon in seeking to clarify the perversion by the Pharisees and the scribes. So we see that he defines the righteousness demanded by God that is more excellent than what the Pharisees and the scribes taught or even practiced. And again, Jesus does this by first of all exposing the error of the religious leaders and expounding the spirituality of the Mosaic law. So let us look at these five verses and see what Jesus teaches concerning the Christian way to deal with a desire for personal revenge and how we are to follow Jesus' example. Now some read these verses and they think that is simply unrealistic. No way can I do what Jesus says here. You may have been thinking that as I read those verses just a moment ago. And in one sense, you're exactly right. In the flesh, it is impossible to fulfill what Jesus says here. It doesn't seem realistic. There is a desire in every one of us to pay back those who do us wrong. Right? I mean, if someone does these things that Jesus is talking about here to us, our first instinct, fleshly speaking, is to get back. 
to pay them back. I mean, we want justice to be carried out. And the Bible even teaches justice in the court system. And the court system is based upon this truth that is mentioned here by Jesus. The one must pay for his wrongdoings. And we see that Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament three times this particular passage that he uses here. An eye for an eye and tooth for tooth is mentioned in the Old Testament. So you don't take an eye or both eyes when the loss of one eye. Nor do you take more than one tooth when there's only one tooth that is lost. In other words, this is based upon fair punishment set up by the legal court. Now, in the good old USA, we wouldn't last one week if we didn't have a court system. I mean, there would be rights, there would be bloodshed everywhere. And we've seen a small picture of that. Last summer we saw a small picture of that, even with the court system. But could you imagine if tomorrow they said, okay, we're doing away with all court systems, all judge, all lawyers, etc., etc. It would be chaos. I can remember years ago, back I believe it was in the 60s, when uh, New York lost power for one night. It was chaos. Bloodshed. All sort of sinfulness. See, the court system is set up to restrain sin. Now, some cities thought that they were really brilliant and they were going to reduce their police forces. And we see that these same cities now are crying out because crime has increased. Well, you know, it doesn't take a genius to realize why crime has increased. When you reduce your police force. When district attorneys allow criminals to go free, you have chaos. And we see this in many of your liberal cities. I mentioned in the newsletter, you've read it already this morning, it was sent out about what took place last week with the 16-year-old hitting a policeman over 20 times after he had jumped a turnstile there in the subway. And the guy was released on his own recognizance. And he had been charged with multiple crimes just a few days earlier for robbery. And he's released. How foolish when you have district attorneys who think that they're going to solve the problem with their own knowledge instead of turning to the law. A.W. Pink said, Magistrates were never ordained of God for the purpose of reforming reprobates or pampering degenerates but to be His instruments for preserving law and order, that by being a terror to the evil. In other words, criminals ought to be fearful of our magistrates, of our judges, of our court system. Fearful because they know that it's been set up to restrain their evilness. 
So we need to understand that Jesus isn't teaching against the authority of civil law. He even affirms the right of the Roman government in his day to have such authority. There in Matthew twenty two twenty one, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and unto God the things that are God. So we see that Jesus is speaking of something else. He is teaching about the desire of personal revenge. When someone does something to us or some of our loved ones, they do something to them wrong that doesn't involve the civil court. Now, if it involves the civil court, you let the civil court handle it. So he's talking about something that is done to you that does not involve the civil court. Leviticus 19.18 forbids personal revenge. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Children, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And then what's the second greatest commandment? And love your neighbor as yourself. And all the laws we know hang on these. So love your neighbor as yourself comes immediately after do not take personal vengeance. But we are to do something better. Instead of taking personal vintage, what are you to do? What is better? Well, he tells us, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, fleshly speaking, it would be better to take vengeance. I mean, it really feels good, but only for a short run. So God says it's better to show love. And when you do it, you might not have a loving feeling, but you have pleased God in doing it. Proverbs 20, 22. Do not say, I will recompense evil, but wait for the Lord and He will save you. See, there is this idea. Don't get mad. Get even. But that's exactly opposite of what God is saying here in the Word of God. Listen to what Paul says. Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will replay, says the Lord. See, we must wait on God to do that which God sees fit in doing. Again, It is difficult not to take vengeance. When someone crosses you, when someone harms you, when someone does you wrong, I know that. I'm a human being just like you are. The flesh can easily get riled up. Well, this brings me to my second point. How can we avoid being eaten up with seeking vengeance. 
Again, Leviticus 19.18 gives us a clue. At the end of that verse, he says, I am the Lord. In the Hebrew, for you Hebrew scholars, some of y'all taking Hebrew right now, Lord there is what? Yahweh. His personal name. I am who I am, which was first mentioned there in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. Because I am who I am, you are to be different from this world. You must respond differently. So so it's God, personally God Himself, saying that we are to respond differently from the world. Yahweh is holy, pure, just, full of love, truth, and a sovereign God. So He says, trust me. Let me handle the situation for you. Basically, you can do one or two things when offended. First, if you're really right in what you did, you can say, I'm going to straighten it out. I'm going to fix it. That's one thing you can do. Or... You could say, by faith, I'm going to turn it over to God and see what God will do about the situation. Listen to what Psalm 62, 5 and 6 says. My soul waits silently for God alone. My expectations is from Him He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. So God is telling us who He is. God is saying, you can trust Him. But what is our problem? You know what the problem is. We don't like waiting, do we? We want it done right now, instantly. We we want God to straighten things out immediately. But we must remind ourselves, God is never on your timetable and my timetable. God has His own timetable. Do you understand that? Sometimes it seems like we forget that, that God has His own timetable. And we want God to act according to our timetable. But His timetable is different. His timetable is always perfect. His timetable is always right. And He can handle the situation much better than you can. He can handle the situation much better than I can. Is that not true? If that's true, then why don't we trust Him? Do we really believe Romans 8, 28? And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Make sure you understand that. It's for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. Did God allow the difficulty, whatever it may be, did God allow it to come into your life? Most certainly did. He allowed it. He brought it. And He has a purpose. You understand that? 
that every single thing that comes into your life and into my life, He has a purpose. It's not there accidentally. It's not, oh, oh, I, I didn't mean to send that to Him. No. He brought it with a direct purpose in bringing it into your life. When God saves us, He united us with Christ in His death and burial and resurrection. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace abounds? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? Or do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, Certainly we all shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, and that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, We believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over us. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see what he says there? Especially that last verse. He says, Likewise you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are to be dead to sin. And vengeance is sin. We are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, you may desire vengeance, but if you call upon the Lord, He will give you supernatural strength to overcome vengeance. See, our union with Christ Jesus is the only way that we are able to have this supernatural power to be able to overcome vengeance. We have died to sin, he says. And if sin is vengeance is a sin, then we have the power in us by the Spirit of God to overcome vengeance when someone does you wrong. My pastor friend Jerry Marcelina shared a story that shortly after he was saved and he joined Grace Community Church where John MacArthur is pastor, he said he joined the baseball team and, and one night they were having a baseball game and, 
And as they were playing the game, John MacArthur was talking to his son who was on base and, and telling him to get a little further off the base. And the other coach hollered at him and said, what are you doing? John MacArthur explained, well, I'm coaching my son. And had some things to say to him. And then he spit in John MacArthur's face. Jerry said John MacArthur took out his handkerchief and wiped his face and looked at the dugout and walked back to the dugout. Sat down. And Jerry said, I wanted to hit the guy. There's no way I could have done what John MacArthur did. And he said, I realized how immature in the faith I was. He saw someone demonstrate before him what this passage is speaking of. Now some may think, well, Jesus is speaking about super Christians. He's speaking about the apostles. He's speaking about Christian martyrs. Those who are considered really spiritual. No. Jesus is teaching that this is for every humble person who has trusted in Christ and experienced the grace of God. Every Christian is called to live this standard. To display this such godliness in their work, in their home, In all that they do, it can happen in the workplace. Your boss, your co-worker can sometimes really get under your skin. They know you're a Christian. So sometimes they're going to test you just to see how much of a Christian you are. They may give you extra work or do something else to see if they can rile you up. Or it might be a housewife who's married to an inconsiderate, selfish husband. Or a husband who is married to an overbearing wife who demands him to submit to her instead of vice versa. Or even as a Christian living in this unjust and this wicked world where he gets no credit whatsoever for doing what is right but is often put down and called all kinds of names by the elite. Jesus says to each one of these, call upon me. And I will give you the supernatural power that you need to rise above the circumstances. To overcome vengeance for the glory of God. As I've already stated what God says there in Proverbs 20.22. That He will step in and He will enable you. What do we learn from this? That it is really a question of faith. 
when we are crossed. A lack of faith says, I will handle it. A lack of faith says, I'm going to fix it. A lack of faith says, I won't get mad, I'm going to get even. True faith says, I will turn it over to the Lord. I will wait upon Him. Recently, a friend shared with me how a co-worker for years got under his skin. Always agitating and irritating. And he said, you know, I could come back sometime with things to get him. But one day as they were having their meeting, this irritator, agitator, sat right down next to him and started up again. My friend just simply bowed his head and prayed. God, please move this mountain. A few weeks later, he heard that this co-worker who had been working for years with him had been fired due to his own stupidity. Of course, my friend's first reaction was joy. Wouldn't it be with you? Man, he's out of my life. He's not going to irritate me anymore. My thorn in the flesh has been removed. But then he said he was convicted. And it humbled him to realize that that person needed Christ. And he prayed, God, use this firing to wake him up to his need of Christ. Such people will be brought into your life. Are you prepared for them? Are you prepared to respond in the way that my friend responded? Will you trust God when you're faced with adversity and wait upon the Lord to see what He will do? Or will you seek vengeance? Now, if you're thinking what Jesus has said already is difficult, it's about to get worse. I mean, look at, look at verse 39. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. I mean, if this was not in Scripture, it would almost be impossible to believe. I mean, if you and I had written Scripture, would we include this? <laughs> no way. And of course, we wouldn't include it because we are sinful human beings. 
So we must remember that we are under the authority of God's Word. We're not above it. In other words, we must submit to God's Word. We must submit to this verse. I can remember years ago, just shortly after we had started as a church, as a particular man, wasn't a member very long, but he and his wife were having some issues, and I gave him a book and said, read this book, Wayne Mack's book on strengthening your marriage. And he came back and he said, just no way, this is unrealistic. There's no way a man can live by what this book says. Well, this book is only stating what Scripture says is what I told him. Well, it's just unrealistic. That's the mindset of a lot of people. And they look at this particular verse and they say, this is unrealistic. But what we have to understand is that the Bible often goes against every ounce of normal feelings. For if one slaps you, what is your first natural response? Punch them out. Right? That's what we have to deal with. Hit them. Make them regret what they did to you. Teach them a lesson. That's the natural response. But Jesus tells us to do that which is very difficult. Do that which is impossible unless the Spirit of God lives in you and provides the supernatural power you need. Which comes as a result of the fruit of the Spirit being brought forth in your life. And we must grasp that God doesn't mind calling upon us to do things that are difficult. I mean, almost every single thing that God calls upon us to do is difficult. It's not easy. Take up your cross and follow me. You think that's easy? No way. That's difficult. The Christian life is difficult. And this may be one of the most difficult things for us to do, to turn the other cheek. Now, of course... Our example is Jesus Christ. I mean, how many times did He demonstrate godliness and self-control? Throughout His ministry, again and again, He showed grace to the religious leaders who did all that they could to destroy Him at every turn. With their words, time and time again, they challenged Him. And we know finally they succeeded in putting Him to death. Think about the last days that he was here on this earth as he was arrested and he was dragged from one individual to another individual, back to the other individual, dragged up the hill, carrying his own cross, spit upon, beaten beyond recognition, a crown of thorns placed upon his head, and then nailed to a cross, and then hung between two feasts and treated like the worst of criminals. Did he retaliate? I mean, he could have called 10,000 angels, the Scripture tells us. But instead, he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do you realize that that prayer was answered? 
on the day of Pentecost. It was answered. Remember, it tells us that even priests and Levites were saved. Priests and Levites were forgiven. Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Likewise, we are to pray. We are not to retaliate so that God's grace is revealed to some of the meanest people that we will come in contact with. They need to see God's grace in your life. They need to see that Christianity is real. They need to see that Christianity has changed your life and you're not like them. And that if they want what you have, they must go to Christ as well. That's what they must see. And we must, of all people, allow them to see that there is a God, a powerful God, that is able to take the worst of sinners and save them by His grace and make them holy. That's what the world must see. And they see it when we live out these verses. And notice what he points out there in verses 40 through 42. He speaks about us demonstrating this supernatural power when others seek to get the best of us by taking our material possessions, which is also difficult. Now, it's not as difficult as being slapped and turning the other cheek, but this is difficult also. I mean, he says if if someone seeks to take your undercoat, your sweater, give it to them but also give them your overcoat. Again, this seems odd. But your generosity hopefully would shock them and they would get a glimpse of who God is. I mean, that should be our motive. We want people to get a glimpse of who God is because of how we live the Christian life. We must look at the greater and higher results. And this should remind us that this world is not our home. That we are pilgrims simply passing through. This this is one of the things, I know the ladies are going to be starting their Bible study in the fall and they're going to be studying Pilgrim's Progress. That's the whole emphasis of Pilgrim's Progress, that he's going through this world and he realizes that this world is not his home and he's doing what? He's looking toward the celestial city. Going to the celestial city to be with Christ. And that must be our ambition. Understanding that this world is not our home. And in doing what Jesus says, we are storing up treasures in heaven. And being a witness for God here on this earth. Some may be thinking, this is the craziest sermon I've ever heard. And it would be, If there wasn't a new heaven and a new earth awaiting us. If this earth and the things that we have on this earth was all there was, then it would be different. It's so sad. 
that many Christians live as though this is the only world. Investing all they have into this world. If we grasp that we are on this earth for such a short time. And I mean, those that are older, you understand what I'm saying. When you're younger, you don't understand it. Because I used to be there. I, I was young at one time, believe it or not. You just don't understand it when you're young. But when you get older and days are clipping off as if, I mean, a year has gone by. Boom. You realize how short life is. And the closer you get to that celestial city, the more you yearn for it. I mean, if we grasp this truth that we are here for only such a short time, these truths would make us more sensitive to what Jesus is saying here. Our purpose as Christians is to show others who God is. That He is a God of grace. We cannot do this unless we're graceful people. That we show grace to people as God has shown grace. Now this brings me to my final point. One of the things that divides more families than anything else is the settlement of a family estate. I mean, there are many painful illustrations. We won't go there today. But most of us know of those who have gone through it. And as a result, there are those in families who have not spoken a single word to the other person in the family after their parents passed away and the estate was divided up. Recently, I was in a pastor's meeting and one of the pastors there was sharing about two sisters in that particular church who lived next door to each other. They, they built their houses right there next to their parents. And, and when the estate was divided up, guess what happened? One thought that they were shortchanged. And she had gone to a realtor and said, put my house up for sale. I am not living by my sister anymore. Now both of them claim to be Christians. There was some there who said, well, I wouldn't get in the middle of that cat fight. I said, well, we have a responsibility as pastors to get in the middle of that situation and point out how sinful it is and how we need to respond in a godly way. I mean, what does Jesus say? He says, take a loss if you have to. Show them who is the Lord of your life. Show them that you are not controlled by possessions, by things. That material possessions are not that important. That things are vanishing away. And that there is something that is more important. I mean, how does it make sense to let others have 
what is rightfully yours. Well, it only makes sense if Jesus is who He says He is. It only makes sense if Jesus is Lord of your life and you realize that you're not here on this earth very long, that you're here on this earth for a very short time compared to eternity. I mean, all that we have, we may enjoy for 40, 50, even 60 years or more. But what is that compared to eternity, folks? We forget about eternity. It's never ending. Our entire life won't even be a blink on the radar screen compared to eternity. And Jesus says that we're storing up treasures in heaven there in eternity. And Jesus expects us to honor Him in our interaction with others, even with selfish people. That might even mean that we have to take a loss. But remember, one day all that we have is going to remain here anyway. As I've stated before, and I didn't make it up, Billy Graham, I think, came up with it. There's no U-Hauls behind a hearse. Now, some might try to carry it with them. I've heard of people putting stuff in their coffin with them. But they're not carrying it with them. Ignorance to do that. But we see that we are to be generous people. He goes on and parts out about a brother. If a brother wants to borrow from you, they need help. He says, help them out. I mean, even if that means that they will not pay you back. You must not seek vengeance if they don't pay you back. I told you this might seem crazy to some of you. But worldly speaking, the Scripture is often foolish to the fleshly minded. And I admit to preach on this is a lot easier than doing it. But the Holy Spirit is greater than our fallen nature. But even our sanctified human nature is often weak and isn't perfectly sanctified. That's the reason why John tells us in 1 John 4, 4, Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Do we believe that? Satan wants you and me to seek vengeance. Satan wants you and me to misrepresent God and His grace. But He that is in you gives you supernatural power to obey what these verses say. There are times that we have failed in these things. There's times that we have not been gracious, but we've been sinful. But remember, God is a gracious and forgiving God who cleanses us from all unrighteousness if we confess our sins to Him. 
We confess our failures. And then he turns around and he gives us new opportunities to be obedient. As God, ask God to use us to bring honor and glory to his name. Ask God to use us to make things right and bring glory to his name. If you do this, he will honor you either here on this earth or in glory. But if you're not in Christ, then you can't please God. You can't do what these verses require. You can't show grace to your fellow man if you haven't experienced grace. You must have grace to show grace. And the grace only comes from having a personal relationship with Christ. He changes the heart. So that we have a desire to do what is written on this page. Has your heart been changed so that you desire to please God? and not seek vengeance. Let's pray. Father, this is a very difficult passage that we have looked at this day. Very convicting. And we pray, Father, that we would repent of the things that we have done that contradicts the words of Christ. We pray, Father, for those who do not have the power within them to be able to do what these verses say because they do not know Christ. May today be the day of salvation. May their hearts be changed so that they can't become gracious people. May we who are saved, Father, be sanctified even more so that we have a greater desire to fulfill what these verses say and to live them out each and every day in our life. Father, do not leave us in our ignorance, but apply these truths to our lives so that we might bring honor and glory to your name. 